You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of this podcast. Or welcome to the podcast if it's your first time. I know there's a lot of things you could be doing right now, so the fact that you are spending time with me and this week's distinguished guest, Mr. Misha Mansoor from Periphery, Bulb, Horizon Devices, all kinds of different projects. If you are in the guitar world, there's a good chance you know who this dude is. And if you don't, you're about to find out a lot more about him. So let me do some real quick housekeeping, and then we will jump right into the episode. Okay, so first off, it's been a little while since I've requested this, but if you could review the podcast wherever you listen to it, if it allows reviews, I would really, really appreciate that. You know, just keeps things fresh, lets people know what to expect, hit it with that five star if you think it deserves, you know, five stars, (laughs) and I hope you do. That would be very appreciated, and if you could, you know, follow, everyone's calling it follow now, it seems like, in at least in Spotify and Apple, which is where most people listen to this, you could follow the podcast. That way you never miss an episode because I've got some bonus stuff coming out next week and I wouldn't want you to miss anything ever. So if you could follow wherever you listen to this show, that would be massively helpful. And share it with your friends. I say that at the end of the episode most of the time. This time I'm going to say it at the beginning. If you could share this with somebody you think would enjoy it, that would help me out massively. That is the biggest thing you can do to help support this show is get others to check it out as well. And if you do that or have done that, thank you so much. I super appreciate you. Okay, that's it. Let's wrap this up. Let's get into this episode with Misha. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tone Mob Podcast, the show about guitar stuff occasionally, sometimes. I'm your host, Blake Weiland, and with me today, I have somebody I've been wanting to talk to for a long time, Bulb, Mr. Misha Mansoor of Periphery. How's it going, dude? Hey, man. How you doing? I'm doing good. Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm, uh, you know, still just like trying to recover from your background images, if I'm being honest. That was pretty intense. Yeah, this is this is an entire dimension that the listeners will miss out on. But, That's probably uh, okay. There's some very wholesome, <laughs> epic backgrounds that I believe due to the rating that you spoke about at the beginning of the podcast, we can't describe. Yeah, it would probably be a little bit much for most people. Yes. But let's just say, you know, it's just between us now. And that's yep, all that really It's our matters. little secret. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I think most of the listeners of this show are probably pretty familiar with you, but maybe there's there's definitely some people who aren't as familiar with the heavy scene. So if you could give the, you know, 30,000 foot quick rundown of who you are and, and what you do, maybe that would be a good place to start. Sure. I'm an idiot who makes music in bedrooms and somehow parlayed that into a career of making music in bedrooms. <laughs> and here we are. And here we are. <laughs> but don't sell yourself short. You know, you definitely helped um, get an entire, you know, subgenre of metal off the ground in a lot of people's view. Um, I had some questions from the Facebook group regarding that, but maybe you can start with that origin story. Of yeah. How you became a- uh, I mean, well, you know, it, it, it's always weird because that makes it sound like there was sort of a grand plan and it didn't just completely happen by accident. <laughs> as a byproduct of what I was doing, which is what happened. Right. Um, you know, as I describe it, like, uh, you know, uh, I'm a gamer. I had a gaming computer that I'd put together, and I had, like, this sound card that actually had, like, a quarter-inch input on it, which was very handy. Uh, right. And I was like, well, could record into my computer, and I was just discovering DAWs at that point in time. This is early 2000s, very early 2000s. So this is right around the time where sort of home computers were powerful enough to start recording with. And then there was this product called Drumkit from Hell from then a fledgling company called Toontrack, which is now, mm-hmm. you know, a, a massive company. But that was their first product. And it allowed these relatively, especially for the time, realistic program drums, which was very interesting because the alternative back then was like a drum machine, which did not sound realistic at all. Or going to a studio, which is very expensive. Then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I had the ability to write and record things 
just on my own. Right. Right. And that, that opened up so many doors for me because all of a sudden I didn't have to bother anyone. I could do this on my own time. I didn't have to go to a studio. I didn't have to really know that much. I was using this as an opportunity to learn how to work all this stuff. And the, the, the initial goal was just, Oh, I could just record stuff for myself. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't sound particularly good, but it was just cool. It was just fun. And eventually it was like, well, let's see how good I could get this to sound. It'd be kind of cool if I could get this to the level of a demo or something like that. Like, obviously it wouldn't be studio quality, but just even getting demo quality, you couldn't do that on your own before. And um, I was part of a lot of forums because back then, especially, I think metal was a lot more underground. And certainly with my group of friends, I, I don't know. Are you a metal guy at all? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you're if you had the same experience, but... Generally speaking, in my experience, there was the metal guy in the group of friends and everyone's like, oh, he's the he's the metal guy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and anytime you'd ever try to talk about metal, maybe you had some nice friends and they'd, they'd humor you, but they really, really didn't care. And they kind of wish you'd just shut up about it. And then whenever you found another friend who liked metal, it was like, ah, now we can talk about this and not annoy each other. And I discovered <laughs> forums, which were basically just these large groups of people where you could get sort of granular about your interests. For example, sevenstring.org. Right. A lot of guitarists didn't even know what a seven string was or what it, what its application was. But now you had an entire forum dedicated to that instrument. The Meshuggah forum. Meshuggah is one of my favorite bands of all time. Massive influence. And, you know, to this day, I could rant about them for hours. So finding another group of people I could rant with and they'd be happy to talk about it and discuss and yell back at me, that was, that was a lot of fun. And a lot of these forums had... Um, sort of like shameless self-promotion sections and you could upload songs. And I just kind of did that because that's what everyone else did who was putting together songs. I didn't think any of my stuff was particularly special, especially considering there were some people that were uploading some pretty impressive stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, people that, that still friends with to this day, you know, people like Ackle from Tesseract and and Paul Chimp Spanner and John Brown from Monuments. And, you know, there's just an amazing amount of talent on those those forums. And I was just like, well, I'll just post my stuff up, too. For whatever dumb reason, people actually like resonated with my stuff, which just encouraged me to post more and more stuff. So that was sort of where it all started and built from, you know. Right. Right. See, that's the thing. It's like I, you know, my origin story is not like all that different in that I just started posting stuff on the internet and people seem to want more of it. Right. It's like um completely different path, but it's like I if I said I knew exactly what I was doing from the beginning, that would be a lie. It's definitely like figuring it out as you go. And that's why something I talk to like a lot of creatives listen to this and it's just like ripping that band-aid off and just diving in for the first time with whatever your project is is sometimes the hardest part. Do you have any words of encouragement for people who are maybe struggling with that? Um, ironically, I find that to be the fun part. So mm-hmm. I'm less of a read the manual kind of guy and just kind of let's just let's get our hands dirty, learn by let's doing. Do it. Um, mm-hmm. it can be very intimidating. Um, it's it's this weird, esoteric form and system that you have to learn and use, you know, the, the DAW and all this stuff. Right. There's a lot to learn. <laughs> it's one of those things that once it becomes second nature, then it stops being a um, a sort of block or, or a bottleneck in your creative process. And that's, that's where it gets ideal because then it just becomes a tool to get the ideas from your head into the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, it, it, I don't really have any advice. It's just, there's a ton of resources. Like when I was doing this, there were no resources. So you just had to figure it out and like piece together what you could from the little bit that you heard or whatever friends you had that were, or maybe on the forums, you know, people critiquing or whatever, like try this, try that or whatever. Yeah. Um, Now there's so many resources that if you were interested in that, you could probably just watch free YouTube videos and become an expert. Mm -hmm. So I would say that that perhaps is a way to encourage people is knowing that you could learn everything you'd ever need to know for free <laughs> if you yeah. put in the time, which is Definitely nice. Definitely can. Um, and, and also there's, there's a, now there's just a ton of products that will help you in that, in that process. I own one of those companies too, Get Good Drums. Um, and, and 
we have so many beginners, you know, we, we are so many people's first drum library, for example, we, you know, we do uh, uh, drum samples for programming, you know, realistic drum samples. And um, that's what we found is that we actually have a lot of these, uh, the, these first timers and that that's their sort of gateway drug into this. And it can, uh, it can be very interesting. Like it's, um, it, it's a kind of the, the barrier to entry is pretty high on this stuff, but once you, once it sort of clicks, then you can see sometimes we'll follow people from like, you know, just getting their first plugin or whatever. to like making really, really cool stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's like, Oh, that was, that was maybe the catalyst right there. I think that's, I think that's pretty cool. So it's just, it's just such a weird thing to get into sometimes and you just need the right person to show you. And then, and then you'll realize, Oh no, I'm very creative. Like this is, this is actually a path now. <laughs> it's kind of cool. Right. So I, I want to go back to something you said right at the beginning where you're, you say you identify as a bedroom player. Was it weird making that transition from being like a studio, you know, bedroom player to actually playing on stage in front of people? Was that weird? Um, Weird isn't the word I would use, but it's just it's just different. It's it's a completely different dynamic, and all the practice in the world doesn't prepare you for it. Really, the mm -hmm. only way to get good at playing live and touring is to just do it. And right. Every brand, every band that starts is green, unless like every member of that band has experience before. But mm -hmm. generally, I mean, in, in in with periphery and whatever, we were all green, so we had a lot of lessons we had to learn the hard way. Oftentimes that's the most effective way and kind of the only way you will learn those lessons is there's a lot of strange rules of the road that you wouldn't really, they're not necessarily intuitive, but they make a lot of sense right. once you learn them. So, and, and just performing live, you could practice forever, but once you're actually playing a show and there's adrenaline coursing through your veins and how that affects you and just, yeah, the, the energy with the crowd and, and all that, that can really change the context of everything and all the practice mm -hmm. in the world won't prepare you for that. So it was just sort of adjusting to that and learning how to do that. It's just a, a different skill and a new skill and you just kind of have to put, put your time in. Mm -hmm. Did you have a, any trouble translating like tonally what you were doing in the studio to a live context or was that pretty straightforward? Like as far as like guitar tone? Yeah. Yeah. It's drastically it like almost is the opposite uh, in the studio, if you think about it, you're listening to things. I don't know how nerdy you want me to get with this. But, nerdy. Okay. Nerdy. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you're listening to things generally at lower volumes. And even if you're cranking, you're not listening to that loud generally. So yeah. you can get away with a lot more high end. You can get away with a lot more scooped, you know, mixes. And, and, and your guitar tone can be more about sort of character. Because right. you can have like this really nice t defined top end and you can scoop it a little bit and let the bass do the work. And like uh, you can just have like a completely different character. Li live is almost utilitarian first and then you can down the character later. So you want to just right. cut through the mix. <laughs> live is never ideal. It's just working and getting a mix going as quick as possible in a sense. You know, in the studio, mm -hmm. you have all the time in the world to just make these minute changes to everything as, as you see fit automating stuff and, and, and whatnot, but live, it's just got, it's got to work. So mm -hmm. there, there, I actually go for a much darker and much more mid rangey tone. And I, I see this mistake being made all the time. Um, even as common things as, you know, if you're micing up a cab, people dialing in their cab while standing up and not hearing what the mic is hearing. Right. And then right. you'll end up with a tone that is insanely bright, insanely bright. And like when it's coming through, the PA will just be like, kind of like, Shh, you know, that's mainly <laughs> if you've ever been to like a metal show and you see fingers moving and all you hear is like, Shh, that's why they probably right. dialed that in standing up because high end is very directional. So just even learning like, yeah, if I'm going to dial in my tone, I need to dial it in like for what the mic's hearing and not what I'm hearing while I'm standing. Or like even a foot off of the direct <laughs> path of the sound, you know, like will make such a massive difference um, to what you're hearing and how you might dial it in. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really about at that point, loud volumes, those, those high frequencies suck. <laughs> they're gonna, they're right. gonna make you go deaf. They're gonna make the audience go deaf and they're not going to cut through the mix. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's not really a lot of information like tonal information, like past like 4k. That's like the, the, the character and the nice stuff and the stuff that makes it sound great, it, it, you know, on its own, but 
really live, there's not really a whole lot of useful frequencies up there. Mm -hmm. So as I said, it's kind of the opposite. Um, and uh, learning that you, you need to also see what works for your band because it's a mix at the end of the day. So depending on your style of music, how noty it is, your tuning, whatever, you know, take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. But generally, and for us in our experience, yeah, more of it, we can get away with more scooped in like sort of character tones uh, in a studio setting and live it's a lot more utilitarian. That's something that about the mic placement that's uh, really important. And I think we all think about that in a studio context. Yep. We've heard that over and over again. Mic placement is so crucial. You got to play with your mic placement. But I think almost nobody thinks about it live. They just will drop a, a microphone over somewhere in the vicinity of the speaker with, and then dial their tone in, like you said, standing up without thinking, what's, what's the mic What's the mic hearing? I don't hear mic placement talked about in, in live situations but, but, very much. But live situations are also more complex because you have way less time. You can spend hours getting in the mic in the perfect position in the studio, and you know it won't move. Mm -hmm. Live, someone may knock into it. That sucks. Yeah. Live, you have a lot of bleed. Yeah. Right. Now, now, obviously, like these, these are sort of directional mics, so it does reject sounds from the outside, but it's not complete. So you are getting drums in there. You are getting just all these other ancillary <laughs> sounds that are just leaking in, and then that's bad. <laughs> that's right. really bad. So it's not going to be as as clean as that. So you're working again. Live is just about making the best of an a, a less than ideal situation, right? Right. Um, right. So I would say you get your mic placed, whatever, and yeah, try to get it. But you'll see a lot of people like kind of mark off, or they'll have these um, these sort of uh, clamps that you know you could just, just sort of puts the mic in the same position. You can mark off where that's on the cap, so it will be relatively the same position. And you know, if you've mic'd a cap before, just a millimeter difference will make all the difference in the world. <laughs> but you're doing the best that you can. So right, it's, right. it's generally close. And then, yeah, then then you have to dial it in for that. Dial it in for what the mic's hearing, not for what you're hearing. So mm -hmm. um, uh, we go direct. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just a, cleans that all up. Just cleans it all up. Yeah, it just makes it so it's... A, I mean, it's at the point now where, you know, short of... Especially when you play bigger stages, you know, the drums are kind of isolated-ish, so they aren't interacting too much with the stage sound. We don't have very much stage sound. Most of our stage sound actually comes from side fills, which don't interact too much with the drums. And our, although we do have guitar cabs uh, going live, they're not allowed to be too loud. Uh, they're mm -hmm. sort of just filling in the sound, uh, even though they sound phenomenal. And uh, uh, it's about having sort of like a clean control sound on stage so that our front of house can actually do a sound check without the band. We do a, what's called a virtual sound check. And, you know, our front of house, we just use last night's show or some other show to dial in the PA and everything. And then the, the sound check itself actually becomes more about being a line check and just an in-ear mix check and making sure everything's kosher on our end. Okay. But I've totally done shows, you know, I've, I've been able, I haven't been able to make sound check for some reason, you know, there's some, some obligation I have and it's totally fine. Just as long as my in-ear mix is consistent, which it, again, with, with, with the, the lack of variables from going direct um, generally is fine or like a slight, a slight tweak, which I can do on my own. So, um, it ends up being the more practical setup. <laughs> uh, yeah. it's the reason why we use a, a, a direct setup. You know, we use that, the XFX is live. Um, just cause it's easier. Like I'd love to use amps. I'd love, I've had so many conversations like periodically we'll tour with the band that's got like an amp set. I'm like, God, that sounds so good. And the truth right. is it would be 10% better for me in my ears and 0% better for anyone out there in the audience mm -hmm. at those SPLs. And it's like, it's just pointless and just creates a lot of work for our crew and just complicates everything for no real benefit than other than the gear nerd in me. Right. It's a, it's a very interesting thing because I'm definitely like Dr. Tube Amp. Like I want, I want the, you know, the sound, I want the feel, but I don't go anywhere. So I have that luxury, you know, yeah. I, can, I, and well, I sit and in out the here. studio. I love, I love tube amps and I'll usually yeah. reamp and, you know, some combination mm -hmm. or whatever. So I'm, I'm totally there, but live, it becomes about just, you know, the practical setup and saving money and just being efficient. Mm -hmm. Which uh, direct solution have you started using? Have you tried the different ones over the years? Yeah, or? yeah, I've tried everything. Um, again, it's it's one of these cases of a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like we we use the XFX2 
live, not because the XFX3 isn't better, but just to switch to the XFX3 would be like a week of like pre reprogramming and setting up. And although it would sound better and feel better, I just don't think it would make that much of a difference for anyone. <laughs> it's right. a lot of work to put in for not much difference. So we just haven't gotten around to it. Maybe someday we'll do it because uh, it's a very powerful unit. I do like the XFXs for live stuff. We've been using it for, God, a decade now that, now that I think about it. So, wow. So it's just what we know. Um, I think the XFX does a very good job. Um, was there any other sort of direct solution that you were referencing or that you wanted me to compare no, it to? No, that's what I was talking about. I didn't know if you used Kemper or what or XFX, or you I wouldn't, wasn't sure which one. You know what's so, so interesting about the Kemper is like people always pitted the XFX against Kemper, especially earlier on when they were sort of the only two solutions, if you will. And I didn't have a Kemper for the longest time. And I got a Kemper semi-recently because uh, Get Good Drums put out a Kemper pack. And it's a really, really cool Kemper pack. And, you know, people are always asking me before and still like, oh, should I get XFX or Kemper? As if they were competing units. And it took actually getting a Kemper to realize, like, they're completely different. They actually couldn't be more different if they tried. The The, the Kemper requires a profile to work. It, mm -hmm. it can't have nothing. You have to have something. And it comes with profiles or whatever. And the profile itself is phenomenal. But any deviation from that sort of standard setup starts to chip away at it. It's more like right. capturing a moment in time perfectly. But don't even mess with the game. Don't even really mess with the volume on your guitar because it just starts to fall apart a little bit there. It starts to get a little artifacty, and you're like, oh, yeah, it's a digital recreation or something. And like the EQ is like a post EQ. It's not like the amp EQ. And the effects are serviceable, but they're nothing, they're nothing to write home about. And uh, what, what it's for, I think, is I really like this guitar tone. I'm going to capture it or... I could give it to my friends or I can like, you know, download someone's guitar tone I respect and it will sound phenomenal, but it's just that. The XFX is the opposite. You start with nothing and you make a sound <laughs> from mm -hmm. scratch and you don't need anything. You don't need a pre and like most of the things, pretty much all the, the, the presets, presets I use on the XFX are things I've made starting from nothing. So to me, like conceptually, they were such different units. I was almost shocked when I got, when I got a Kemper and I realized, oh, you need something. You can't start with nothing and end up with something. So I always found it strange that people sort of pitted the two uh, against each other because if anything, have both or neither, but it's not one versus the other. It's more like, well, do you want to create something or do you want to have something? Right. Are you trying to capture what you have at home and bring it with you everywhere? Or do you want to be able to tweak on the fly and build things and make your own stuff. That's interesting. I didn't realize that about the Kemper. I've played them before, but I didn't mess with them. It was just like at somebody's house and I just like, no, oh, let's hear what this sounds like. Yeah, it's not like you've got like amp models that you can just swap around. It's like, no, right. this is a capture and you can go from this capture to this capture and you could add effects and maybe tweak the overall EQ of it, but it's always a capture. It's always something. Mm -hmm. That makes so much more sense. I had never heard anybody explain it that way. Wow. That is, and it's surprising to, to me. I think a lot of people don't realize. I didn't realize that just because of the way people were comparing them. Totally, you, you think it's apples to apples, but it's like mm -hmm. apples to skyscraper kind of. <laughs> that's that's very interesting. Thank you for that. I didn't know that either. That's that's fascinating. Um, sidestepping something a little bit, or not sidestepping, but going a different direction. There's something I want to talk to you about that didn't get asked by any of my Facebook group people. So. Uh, and I find this very interesting, but you have managed through a variety of different, you know, businesses and, and different things that you do to, you know, be able to make a living doing what you enjoy. At least that's what it appears from the outside looking in. Um, and I think a lot of musicians, especially ones that are in niche or, or heavier genres struggle with that. Um, what advice do you have? Like, how did you think to you know, do the get good drums. How did you think about like doing the horizon devices stuff? Like how come you seem to be a little bit unique in that respect? That's a, that's a very big question with a very complex answer, but the short version of it is you need to diversify. You need to accept the industry for what it is. 
I always get in trouble for answering this question because I give the answer people don't want to hear, which is it's very tough to make money just being in a band. And you yes. have to do other things. I think the advantage that I had earlier in like when we started is the is recognizing that and accepting that. As we started the band, I told everyone, I was like, we're not gonna make money with this. So plan around that. Let's figure stuff out. Mm -hmm. And we were all thinking together and we were all sort of thinking of ways. We were giving lessons on tour, you know, doing doing whatever whatever we could. And it doesn't even have to be related to the band, but just trying things. I think if you go in expecting the band the band to eventually be your 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 end game plan and, and your way to survive, that's where you'll be disappointed. And again, like I say, plan around that because if I'm wrong, great, you'll just have more income. Right. But if I'm right, then at least you won't be surprised when you're like, wow, like we're five, ten years in and we tour all the time. And yeah, we gross a lot, but we net very little. I have no stability. I, I can barely pay my bills. Uh, I, you know, what kind of life is this? And, and to, to sustain this, I have to be on the road six to nine months out of the year. And as I'm in my, you know, thirties, mid thirties, I don't know that I want to do that anymore necessarily. And it's very taxing to do that. And obviously offers very little stability to your life. And again, there's always exceptions. There's always people who will be totally fine with that, very happy with that. But there's a lot of people that aren't and not planning for that, not thinking well ahead um, could could end in in quite a bit of disappointment. I think. I think mm -hmm. there are things that you can work on, and a lot of these things take a lot of time to put together. They they take they take planning and a good idea and a ton of luck. Um, as far as what to do, that's that's not a simple to answer, unfortunately. Right. But but there is a simple answer from my end, which is I've only done things that I'm passionate about. I would do get good drums for free. I would do horizon devices for free. I would do three dot recordings for free. You know, I would do all these things because they're fun. And that's why when, when it's sometimes it's a slog or sometimes it's a lot of work or there's no sense of how successful it would be. It doesn't matter because it's a passion project. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things I've tried. People have just seen the ones that have succeeded, but there's a lot of ones that just didn't work out. Uh, it's the same thing for the other members in the band. You know, Matt was working on a project, our drummer, uh, called Band Happy, which he was doing since before he joined. And it was kind of his priority over the band. Put years and years of his life and insane amounts of work into it. And it failed. And the one thing that he's always been good at, which I took a lot of inspiration from, and I think a lot of people should, is knowing when to cut your losses. So Matt knows when to to cut his losses and pivot and just try something else. And that's hard when you've put like six years of your life into, or more, probably more of your life into something, you know, that, that whole sunk cost dilemma mm -hmm. becomes very real. Uh, and, and, and that can be hard. So it's, it's just, it's just, unfortunately there's some people that are just better at it than others. Um, I don't know why I've, I have a bit of a knack for it. I wouldn't say I'm the best at it. I never thought I would have a knack for it. I always considered myself a musician, but my dad was the one being like, I think you're more a businessman than you are a musician. <laughs> mm -hmm. And maybe that, maybe there's some truth to that. I don't know. Uh, I still consider myself a musician first and foremost though. I think it's a, uh, it's a unique skill to have in music because what classically happens with musicians is they end up getting left holding the bag most of the time, not the good bag, uh, <laughs> the bad bag. You know, it's always bag. good song yeah, name. <laughs> the bad bag. Um, it just you know, it's always like, oh, the record label did this, this, and that, and blah, 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 blah. And I just always, it's always fascinating to me because no matter how times we, how many times we hear somebody say, own your masters, take care of your business it still seems that musicians just fall prey to that for some reason. And I don't know if that has more to do with like, you know, the creative brain versus the business brain. I'm not really sure what it is, but it just seems uh, like something that so many run into and I'm glad you were able to avoid it, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I always tell people, we always ask people for advice. Like we early on, we had a lot of peers and we had a lot of friends that were in touring bands and some that seemed very successful. Um, 
And they would say things like, yeah, like we didn't make any money off that album. I'm like, what? Like you just sold a, a, a ton of them. It's like, well, we didn't see this thing in the contract. And it was just kind of learning like, yeah, labels, some labels more than others really wanted to take advantage of the artist. Just the artist mm -hmm. is just a commodity. And if you don't know any better, well, too bad for you, you know? Right, right. And, uh, and I just wanted to learn. I was so fascinated by this industry, but also kind of terrified of it that I just asked as many questions and tried to learn about it as much as possible. It's a lot of really sneaky stuff in those contracts. If you don't know what to look for, you won't even, you won't even see it. You'll read right through it. Look like, like that, that looks fine. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also a lot of excitement about signing a record deal. So, you know, that, that works both ways. You're more excited and more willing to just get it done. And, you know, uh, a predatory, and nefarious label will use that excitement to push stuff through that uh, maybe if you're, you had a more balanced and reasoned view of, of the, the contract, you might be like, hey, wait a second. So yeah, I think it's a little bit of both, unfortunately, and it's just trying to be aware of that stuff. The, the main thing with signing um, a record deal, in my opinion, is just knowing exactly what you want. Understanding the function of the record label, understanding the, the, the function of the deal and genuinely understanding what you want, what you are willing to compromise on, what you're not willing to compromise on, you know, and what, what, what sort of things are just straight up deal breakers. It's like, all right, well, we have a non-starter. Goodbye. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that those go and actually sticking to it's one thing to say that. And it's another thing to get caught up in the excitement. We refused record deals for about three years while we saw all of our friends and, you know, peers get signed and go touring and whatever. And that was difficult. That was definitely very difficult. But I knew exactly what I wanted. And every label is like, you're not going to get that. And then eventually mm -hmm. we got that. Right. And it's and it's tough on the label side, too. I can understand. Sometimes I come across pretty, like, anti-label on this. But uh, Corey Wong helped, like, enlighten me on a few things that made sense. And a few others have been like, well, there's this situation and this situation where it can be very helpful. Um, I agree. I'm a, I'm a label owner and I sign bands and, and yeah. I agree, but I, I know both sides of it. Yeah. I will always say, and, and sorry to cut you off if you were making a point, but just no, quickly, no like, like it's about the contract. People were like, should I sign to this label? Should I do? It's like, it doesn't matter. What is the contract? That mm -hmm. is everything. A great contract from like a nobody label, as long as they deliver on it, is right. always better always better than, <laughs> than a bad contract from a massive label or a label that promises all the opportunity in the world. So it's about the contract itself. And if you have a good contract and a good deal, then yeah, that could be very beneficial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it, it's probably safe to say that like, if there's something you're questioning in the contract, you know, either ask somebody or just don't do it because that's the one thing that's going to end up biting you at some point, you know? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think I think it's fine to question stuff and to ask for clarification, but it's mm -hmm. more like if that thing is clarified and it's like, "Hey, this is not this is not cool or whether it's your gut instinct or you're being represented by a manager and it's sort of their due diligence as well to look, to come through and make sure that you're not getting screwed and you know, your lawyer, I think people think the lawyer is supposed to negotiate it or whatever, but lawyers really just making sure that like what was on the deal memo is actually reflected in legalese because they yep. could always say like, yeah, this is what's in the contract. And then lawyer will be like, actually, that's not what this says here. So we got to fix mm -hmm. that. And either it's like a mistake. A lot of this stuff's boilerplate. So they'll be like, oh yeah, sorry about that. Here you go. You know, they just redline it and just fix it. Or sometimes they're just trying to sneak some stuff through. And that's where your lawyer catches <laughs> is like, that's not what we discussed. So, right. um, you know, there are labels that are more honest than others. There are labels that there, there are labels out there that treat bands more like the the like a commodity, and they're they're after their lottery ticket, and you know they'll they'll sign a ton of bands, and the one or the few that make it fund and justify the expense on on all that sort of this like asymmetrical investment scenario. But like, right. then you have other um, other labels that just seem to be a bit more about nurturing talent and uh, and, and and actually just signing things they believe in. So that's what I think you also have to identify as mm -hmm. best as you can is what kind of label uh, you're dealing with. Now, 
you're in a, you're in an interesting position because you do know both sides. So from the label perspective, what are you looking for in an artist outside of like you know that they're really trying? So we're in a unique position because we don't we're a very small operation, so we don't need a ton of overhead to, to remain solvent. And we really just started our label initially just to push out periphery and our side projects and have a a good setup for that. But but then it was like, well, we could also sign bands that we believe in. So for us, it's nurturing talent that, that we're, we believe in. And it's sometimes hard for smaller bands to get the, the interest of labels. So we can provide the backing. And there's so much that goes into, like you, anyone can release an album, but it's hard to release it well. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's where a label comes in. Um, we have the tools, the expertise, the not not just the money, but but knowing how to use it efficiently and knowing how to budget that efficiently. Just getting the money from like let's just alone. You could squander all of that and just be back at square one, right? Right, which so, happens. So so being able to build a release plan and being strategic, and because we are kind of low budget, really stretching the way the money works for it, so that we're, there's no there's no waste. Mm-hmm. So we want to be efficient. We have to be efficient, really. Um, but it does keep things lean. We want to pay our artists more than what most other labels uh, get because being on the artist side, I know it sucks to to feel like the label's making the, the majority of the money, and, and oftentimes they are. Mm-hmm. And there was a point in time where that made sense because the, the loans being given out were, were massive. Sure, you're loaning out like quarter of a million, half a million dollars. No bank will give you that. But a lot of these advances are so small now that really you you might be able to go to a bank. So it's less about just the money, but it's also about sort of guiding and, and trying to trying to help this band thrive. Um, ideally, I'd want a band that is interested in touring because touring is one of the best things that you could do um, to promote yourself and to get out there. Mm-hmm. And in line with that, we'd want that band to be a very good live band. You know, we wouldn't want to be signing a band that's like, well, we've never played a show, but we're going to we're gonna try it because what if you go on tour and break up because you realize you hate touring or you know, <laughs> half your members don't want to do it. So as a label, I'd want to be investing in a bit more of a sure bet. Um, right. But it doesn't mean that the, the artists that we sign have to tour. It's just a, it's a bonus. It'll affect how lucrative the deal is and how much we're willing to put in because at the end of the day, the, it does have to balance out. But I truly believe a good record deal will be the kind of scenario where it is a mutually beneficial deal for, for both sides. Both sides are getting something positive out of it. Um, and if you're not, I'm not particularly interested as an artist or as a label. <laughs> right. a, it's a bit of a waste of time as far as mm-hmm. I'm concerned. I like that. That was a very good answer. I better dive into the Facebook group questions before I get uh, in trouble and forget. Cause yeah, I, actually no worries. Have, I have forgotten before and everyone's like, thanks for nothing. You know, <laughs> let's see. We're going to scroll through here, pick out some uh, some good ones here. Ooh, well, we'll get to that question in a minute. Um, Colton Wynn asks, how different is his approach with writing when it comes to bulb as opposed to periphery? Mm, I get that one a lot. Uh, periphery gets priority on everything. I just okay. write. I just write to write. And there have been periphery songs that have ended up because... Spencer or someone else in the band, you know, our singer or someone else in the band will be like, hey, we should work on that. I'm like, really? Like, that's that doesn't really seem like a periphery idea, but let's let's run with it. And then before mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a periphery song. Conversely, there have been ideas where I've been writing that like, oh, this would be really cool for oh, getting some echo there for some reason. I don't know. why. Apologies. Oh, but it's no gone. Worries. It was just okay. straight. But yeah, there's, <laughs> there have been some times where. Um, uh, I've I've had an idea where I'm like, oh, this could be kind of cool for periphery, and then they don't bite, you know. <laughs> so, right. So, it's in in a way, bulb gets like sort of the leftovers, but the leftovers that I think had promise or whatever, but maybe worked better instrumental, or you know, got to got to develop in a non-periphery context where it's not for live consumption and it's not with vocals of any kind. Um, and to be honest. I don't particularly enjoy writing alone, so it was a bit of a challenge. Like I've said, I was going to put out a solo album for 15 years before I did. Whereas right. I put out tons of periphery albums and side projects and whatever because I love collaborating and I find 
writing solos a bit stressful by contrast. Right. Right. There's nothing to bounce off of. It's there's exactly. no ideas flowing back and forth. It's Lots of anxiety, just... second guessing. <laughs> yeah, I just did I haven't released nearly the amount of music you have, but I just did my first solo release this year and it was like this is so such a strange process to go through. Yeah, so, yeah, it can be know. very nerve-wracking at times, I find. Mhm. And it's kind of a lot of pressure cuz it's like yeah, it's all me. This is all me, baby. So I can't blame anybody else. Exactly. It doesn't come <laughs> out right. All right, let's see. Um, well, man, there's a lot of good questions in here. Uh, Jason Fuzzmonger, my dude. Uh, how did he get hooked up with the folks at MXR to do all the Horizon stuff? That's a good question. Um, we were shopping around with a bunch of companies to basically, you know, white label or OEM our product. Um with you know it was our idea i mean anyone can really do this just putting up a lot of money up front um yes because <laughs> you have to place the order and commit to it and then if you don't sell it then you're in the hole and you still have to pay for it uh mm -hmm. so it's a bit of a risk um actually initially their 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 minimum po was just more than what we could afford and we had a, a friend there who, who had worked with actually through several companies but he was at mxr at that time uh dunlop and um, his name's Chris Johnson. He's a really good dude, really good friend. And he actually went to bat for us. So we have him to thank because he kind of got them to reduce their, their minimum PO number to something that we could afford being like, trust me, I think this is going to be really good. And at that point in time, we just, you know, you have no data. So, so we just thought selling 500 pedals in a year was going to be difficult. Right. Uh, and we did a lot of promo. We did a lot, you know, we did a pre-order cycle to, to, to address the cash flow is, issue. And, you know, then we, we ended up selling out of those on pre-order within a few days. And this was to do with the hype that we created and, and whatever. And then the pedal had to be delivered and had to be good. But like, you know, that was the, the Horizon Devices Precision Drive, which to this day is like our best-selling pedal. We're, we're constantly out of stock. We actually just got stock, by the way. So... Because that nope. pedal, we were out of stock for so long, it was going for like a hundred bucks over our street price on reverb. <laughs> so like, yeah. people were flipping them at a profit. So now, if you want one, you can actually get one. And hey, they'll be out of stock soon again because we don't have that many of them. So you could flip them at street price uh, above street price <laughs> if you want later. But but it's a it's a really good really good pedal. It's a unique idea, and they were able to put it together. And you know, having worked with with Chris and just getting a good good vibe and it just is one of those things where it just kind of worked out we we uh we looked at a few companies but that was the one that made the most sense and like the price worked out everything just kind of made sense cool that's it that's good to hear that story I'm, I'm always curious about that stuff having done similar things in the past um let's see we got scott gaylor who's been on the show before um this might be kind of a an odd question because it all you know as we discussed comes together to be able to make you be able to do what you do. But he says, what is his favorite side hustle? Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say it's, it's, it's either get good drums or horizon devices because mm -hmm. those were two things that came to life almost either out of necessity or like, I wonder what it'd be like to just try this. There were both things that I did not have, very much expectation for success mainly because i thought of how cool it is usually the things i think are cool are not successful i'm too nerdy and like <laughs> the things that the things i like i like and most people are like yeah whatever mm -hmm. and i was so excited about both of those projects i was like yeah but there's no way like people like it. and you know i'm glad i was wrong but um but yeah those are those are the sort of side hustles that i definitely put the most time into and that i'm the most sort of excited about on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. Do they even feel like side hustles anymore? They just feel no, like... No, they're actually main the, hustles. To, to, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm answering the question within the context. But totally. the true side hustle is Periphery now because it, Periphery right. is my passion project. I don't mm -hmm. really know how much money Periphery makes right now. I don't care. And, and that was one of the things that I did to actually make me fall kind of back in love with Periphery and making music because for a while there was a bit... It's a bit dark, <laughs> right? But right. Uh, but but right before we started P four, we kind of took a break, and I kind of I kind of just looked at 
what I was doing with Periphery a little bit different. I think it did a lot of good. And I think Periphery 4 ended up being a pretty, pretty awesome album for it. It's definitely my favorite Periphery album. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe that was related to that or whatever. But I definitely consider Periphery, although it's sort of the, uh, the, the nucleus, as we say, of all my projects or most of my projects, it's, um, it is also genuinely a passion project. It's something I approach as a passion project. We don't care about album sales. We don't care about what fans think. We don't, we are the label. So we just put out a, we put out an album and then we hand it off to, to get released, you know, and we don't really have much consideration (laughs) for anything else. And that's a lot of fun. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, here we go. Let's see. This this might be uh this might be a tough question to get asked. I know I would be like a little bit weirded out by it, but it's kind of true. So Dave Harbor, uh, he says, "How does it feel to be one of the few modern day guitar heroes, and what does he think will be the the thing that engages kids and brings them brings them to the hobby?" I don't consider myself there. a guitar hero, though. That's the thing. I think I'm pretty mm-hmm. mediocre at guitar. I struggle with this a lot because there's this weird expectation from some people that I'm a mm-hmm. guitar hero and then like on some subconscious level I feel like I need to deliver but I at no point in my life wanted to be a guitar hero and it, and I don't think I am either so it's like this weird context that that gets sort of forced forced upon the way that I see myself or that other people see me but it's not accurate on any level <laughs> I consider myself more of a composer, I think, anyways, because guitar is just, it's just a tool that I'm very familiar with to, to get the compositions out. Mm-hmm. But like, that's where I feel much more at home is writing and, and using, using the guitar and not always using the guitar. You know, sometimes I find it a limiting instrument. So, yeah. uh, and, and I have so many friends I would consider guitar heroes who are just, just several, several levels and orders of magnitude more talented than me at guitar. I'll never catch up if I practice for the rest of my life. Um, so that that's that's a bit of a weird one for me, if I'm honest. Uh, I don't I don't I don't consider myself that at all. What was the second part of the question? Well, I'll get into that in just a second, but I, I want to maybe bring something to your attention. Like maybe you don't consider yourself that, and I can totally understand why, especially in the context of the people you're surrounded by. But I think. I mean, whether you like it or not, like there's a whole generation of players that, you know, really are impressed by what you do. And I know that might be kind of weird to hear and it's hard to, I'm terrible at receiving that kind of information. Yeah, I am too. (laughs) I don't really know what to do with it. I don't really like compliments. Like (laughs) I just really, I just don't know what to say. Just thank you. I disagree, but thank you. Maybe I think that's the best way to do it. Thank you. Thank you. I disagree, but thank you. That's my answer. (laughs) Yeah. That's a, that's probably a good way to go, but you know, there's, there's a reason we're talking right now, you know? But anyway, the second part is what does he think will be the thing that engages kids and brings them to the guitar as a hobby? Or- I think now more than ever, you've got YouTube, you've got... Like, when I think about how I developed in my first few years on guitar, it was always relative to, to my peers and my friends and what I saw. Mm-hmm. And in a way, maybe that held my progress back because I saw someone as, say, John Petrucci or something as the bar. Yeah. And it's a very high bar, but this was also a professional guy. So to not be hitting that bar was like, well, he's a professional. And my friends, you know, are below that. That's sort of an acceptable bar. But now you see these kids on YouTube just, just absolutely destroying the guitar. The bar has been raised. And I think that that just further just resets the the view of, of what one should be trying to attain mm-hmm. at a younger age. So I actually think there's a lot of tools. The guitar is more accessible than ever. It's kind of cooler than ever. Um, yeah. It's less of like a weird nerdy thing, and it's more socially accepted. Um, I think. I, I mean, I think the future of guitar is very bright. Mm-hmm. I I agree. I'm. I think it's the best time in history to be a guitar player. Honestly. Yeah. Whether it's just from gear or even being a beginner. Like you, can, the tones you can get out of beginner stuff now. Yeah, it's miles above what we had. Yeah, when know? we were starting, I, I remember I had a, a you know crate practice amp that was like you know ten, fifteen watts or something like that, and that thing mm-hmm. sounded pretty terrible. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and now, now these like little practice amps sound great. <laughs> yeah, Boss Katana sounds amazing. I know? have this Boss Katana Air, 
And like, I play that more than in my, my, it's just convenient and it sounds great. It feels great. I'm like, wow. Like, yeah, it is. It's actually a really good time. And there's so many free resources. You could become an expert at guitar just by watching free, free YouTube lessons. You know? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Pull up Rick Beato and Marty Stewart and just absorb it all. Exactly. You'll have it, you know? Okay. I was going to maybe save this for Patreon, but this is, I think a lot of people want to want to hear about this. So McLaren versus GT3, which is better? Uh, so like the the which McLaren versus because one one is an entire brand and one is a specific car. Probably whichever. I can't remember which one you uh, have experience with. So that I have a McLaren 720s and I have a GT3 t- Touring. Okay, they're probably talking about the that is so two. for non car guys. I apologize because I should say. Uh, oh, I forgot. Anthony uh, Waldachuk asked that question. Okay, well, thank you for the, the the car question. I could talk forever about cars. I love cars forever. I do too. <laughs> um, that's a really tough question. Uh, do you know much about cars? I I used to be a mechanic, so I I know a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Exotics I'm going to try and answer specialty. this in a way where, where people who don't know anything about cars, but I'm assuming your 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 audience knows guitars well. Yes, right? they do. Mm-hmm. The the Porsche GT3, and I have the Touring, which is kind of, it's like the sleeper, like wingless, manual-only version, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the best custom shop strat you've ever played. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's an amazing, it's a phenomenal guitar, and it just oozes mojo. But it's a design that's been around forever. It's not like something new, but it also just is such a reminder of the past. And it, and it's this very tactile thing, and it's just this undeniable thing. But the guitar just looks like a guitar to most people, you know? Right, right. Um, but you play it, and you're just like, I can't stop playing this thing. It's just just perfect. It's just absolute perfection. I mean, everyone's got to, everyone's got to have a strat. I, it's funny because I don't see a strat behind you. I don't actually have a strat. So let's use a telly. It could be a telly. It could be like All the right. best custom shop telly you've ever played. Mm-hmm. But because uh, I because I love them both. But um, but yeah, that's what that would be. Okay. The the McLaren is like a crazy headless like toyful. Or if you're not okay. familiar with that, like a Strandberg or like an Abasi or something like that. Just a guitar that is like. Is this even from this planet? And it's mm-hmm. got eight strings and fan frets and like crazy electronics on it. And it's amazing. It's amazing in what it does. But how fairly could you compare this eight string fan fret, you know, let's say a bossy to this custom shop telly? Right. And if I was like, which one's your favorite? It's like, man, these are so different. Can they both be awesome? There's some days where I just want the analog experience, you know, driving a manual and and working on that skill set. And it's a very raw and rewarding car. And then sometimes you just want to be in a spaceship <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and see like what what the marvels of modern technology have offered us in the world of cars. And that's where the 720S would, would win on that day. That makes a ton of sense. I totally understand what you're saying with that. It's they're almost as different as they can be yep. while still being a car. Which is why I have them yeah. both. If you think about it, if you were to have sort of two guitars to cover the entire gamut of the experience, you would get something very, very traditional and something that almost subverts everything about that with your other guitar. Of course. <laughs> so that between the two of them, you're covering quite a lot of ground. Mm-hmm. I love that answer. That was perfect. Okay, well, we're getting towards the end of the main episode here, but I do have a couple classic questions to get into uh, and wrap this thing up. But before I do that, this is the point where I like to give the guests a chance to, you know, plug whatever they want to plug, say hello to Uncle Frank and Aunt Penelope, or whatever it is you want to say to a couple thousand people. Now's the time to do it. I don't have a whole lot to plug. I mean, if you want to check out uh, Get Good Drums, we have really awesome drum samples and actually other other products we have like some my favorite irs which we didn't get into that whole rant but we're we're kind of like we're kind of hinting at like how important like cabs and mics and all that stuff like how how drastic a difference that makes so our zilla cab our studio zilla cabs irs are are what i use on absolutely everything and our compressor smash and grab i use on absolutely everything that's all over my solo album as well which I should also plug. There you um, go. Moderately Fast, Adequately Furious by Bulb. 
Um, and, uh, and of, of course, Horizon Devices, uh, where we, I, I should just plug the fact that we actually have the precision drive. People have been waiting for months for that to be in stock. So it's in stock for now. Maybe by the time this comes out, it won't be. So I apologize. But, <laughs> but <laughs> hopefully, if you've been waiting for that to be back in stock, it is. I, mean, I might need to leapfrog this one up so that it maybe will hit. <laughs> you don't anger people, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't really have anything else to plug i don't know my band periphery whatever i don't know yeah i don't care we're just having a fun conversation that's right i like cars that's what i have to plug i like cars i like cars too um okay final questions here we go first one is what is your favorite boss pedal um i had oh man well, I have an HM2, which is kind of, but it's not, like, probably a good HM2, mm-hmm. just for that sound, you know? Right. Either the Swedish Melodeth or, like, the, the Kurt Ballou, you know, mm-hmm. kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, that ES8 switcher a... is pretty cool. Okay. Does the katana count? It does. I think the katana is like the best practice. I'm not even like, <laughs> I, I'm not even like with, but I, I guess they sent me that for free. So that's a lie. No, I, I don't know if I'm officially endorsed by them or not, but whatever. I think that katana rules. Yeah. Like if I was going to buy any product from, that katana is just, the katana air with the little, uh, the dongle, the wireless dongle. Mm-hmm. Genius. Mm-hmm. Absolute genius. Great, great little thing. And uh, I think their reverb pedal, their their big, um, I forget what's called the DD, the the, the one with the DD screen, the DD five hundred, yeah, yeah, that one. It's got a really cool uh, uh, non-linear gated reverb on it, which is pretty cool. Oh, I know. I need to pick one of those up. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. That's a good pedal. All so right. Final question. What's I bet it? that was asked like, oh, boss is like a like like you know like entry level like you know whatever, and it's like actually they make some really cool products. They do. They do. I love it's Boss. It's not boutique, not... but like they make some really, really cool products. I think Bosses, I'd love Boss. And uh, this pod- podcast is not sponsored by Boss, but I ask that on every single episode because I want to know. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I have quite the pedal collection. I love I love pedals. Oh, yeah. Well, we can nerd out on that for hours. I, I love the pedals. Okay, love good. <laughs> I've got a couple hundred. Why? Yeah, it's it's gross. Yeah. It's gross. Good. Yeah, we'd, we'd get along just fine. Okay, final question, and this is the one that gets a little bit dicey. Families have disbanded over this. It's kind of a piece of controversy. What is your favorite kind of pizza? Oh, um, it has to have pineapple on it. No, that's a lie. That's a lie. That's a lie. <laughs> That's that's yeah I know he just <laughs> just delete your, delete the podcast for a while delete this episode computer. I'm um, out of here no so so my favorite is just a simple pepperoni however I oh. maintain I maintain that if I go to a pizza place and you can't make a cheese pizza that can knock my socks off I don't think you're a good pizza place I would I would agree with that. Like, yeah. like you need, because the, the, the pepperoni should be just there to elevate it. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you cannot make a killer and I don't mean, okay. I mean, a killer cheese slice in my eyes, you're not a good pizza place. Mm-hmm. I a hundred percent agree with that. And I, I didn't understand that fully until I'd went to New York a few years ago Yeah, and I'd always heard about the New York pizza and I would see a picture of it and I'm like, it looks like pizza. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it looks like pizza. And then after going there and I was like, yeah, oh, good geez. New York cheese slice. It's kind of all you need. Not even yeah. that if they don't have pepperoni or if it's not, you know, because a lot of them, what they'll do is they'll have the cheese slice, put the pepperoni on and then reheat it in the oven. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also a good, a good pizza. I'm going to add to this because I just realized a good pizza has to reheat well. If it does oh. not reheat well. Think about New York pizza. Most of the New York pizza you have, unless you're ordering a fresh pie, is actually reheated. So they cook it. That's a good point. Set it out. You get a couple slices. They reheat it for you real quick in the oven, right? Mm-hmm. That's phenomenal. It's arguably better sometimes reheated. So if your pizza does not reheat well, you have not made a good pizza. I'll, I'll extrapolate a little further on that. If you can't eat it lukewarm and have it be good, it's probably not a good pizza that, either. I, I will... 
Yeah, I, I actually can't counter that. I think that that's mm-hmm. actually, I've never thought about that before, but I think that that's mm-hmm. probably, it's probably very accurate. I'm not, so I know some people are a fan of cold pizza. I'm not a fan of cold pizza at all. Um, but I, but actually I've had, especially like what with the, the pandemic, I've had a lot of lukewarm pizzas. <laughs> and there's certain ones I prep my oven to reheat and certain ones I'm like, this is fine. It's it's, right. it's good. So yeah, I think you're. I I actually think you're right, and I think we're in the the perfect. Perfect is a really deceiving word, but the perfect time to test this theory. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, since we're talking about this, and before we hop off, I don't. I would. I do want to leave everyone with this discovery. I I have not experienced it yet myself, but um, one of the dudes from Electro Foods Pedals, uh, was it Matt or Carl? I think it was Carl. He posted in the Facebook group a place where you can go get a hot slice of cheese pizza and they give you a baggie of cold shredded mozzarella to put on top of it. And people are raving about this. Interesting. I've never experienced it, but it's like kind of this weird So hybrid. the pizza's hot? Yep. Pizza's hot. And then hot. that melts the mozzar- the cold mozzarella you put on top or is it still kind of cold? Or it's like- not that hot. It's still kind of cold. Like it, Like it's hot enough to eat but not hot enough that it's going to instantly just melt it. So it's like got hot melted cheese on it. And cold and then he, sort of warming and just, cheese. Just like cold cheese on top of it. It's a, it That's sounds so weird, weird. weird enough to It sounds weird enough That's to work. That's weird enough to work. Yeah. I, I mm-hmm. would definitely try that. I almost would not try that on my own. I would like go to the place where that's their specialty. Yes. Because they obviously know what they're doing and mm-hmm. probably have like a moment. <laughs> but but that is so interesting. That yeah. that's I've I've never heard of that. I've never once in my life thought of that. Like Mm-mm. the only time I've ever had like cold shredded cheese and it wouldn't generally be mozzarella, but it's like sometimes you buy the pre-shredded cheese just like you know, like ah just oh, yeah. a little. Yeah, just that's eat fine. it. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. fine. And that's all it is. Is it's yeah, it's fine. It's a little snack. I've never thought like, oh, I should just put this as a thing as a cold thing not to be you know, melted immediately over whatever right. I'm going to put it on. So, mm-hmm. huh. Yeah. I'm intrigued. So we'll leave the listeners with that thought in their brains. Yeah. But my <laughs> gears are turning right now, man. That's a, that's a very, uh, that's a, that's a very enticing thought. The more I think about it, the more I'm like, Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe so. I got to find, I got to find a place that does that. I'll find the, uh, I'll find the exact place and I'll send it to you. Yeah. Cause I, if you go to like a regular pizza place, you ask for that, they'll be like, get out. Delete our number. Never come back. <laughs> never, never, never return. Yeah, you are banned. You're banned from our pizza for the rest of your life. Your family, mm-hmm. your name. Give us your last name. Anyone who's associated with you is not allowed. Yeah, your grandchildren. Right. You, yeah, They'll follow no you one. for generations for daring <laughs> to ask such a thing. So yeah, <laughs> gotta be careful. Absolutely. All right, man. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a blast. Yeah, really absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. It's a lot yep. of fun. Yep. All right, everybody. For Misha, this is Blake, and as always, folks. Good luck in good tones. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I certainly did. That was a very focused conversation, and I enjoyed that. But let me tell you, we went places on the Patreon episode. This was one of the more in-depth conversations that I've actually had. We were talking about the concept of free will and whether we actually have it or not, which was a pretty interesting thing. I hadn't really conversed with anybody about that particular subject. So that was that was pretty off the rails and pretty rad. But if you would like extra content delivered to your ears every week, you can go to patreon.com slash tonemob. And for five bucks a month, you can get additional content with the week's guest. That's usually how that works. I'll record with a particular guest and we will stop and then hit record again and keep talking. And those conversations can go into some pretty magical places, much like this week's did. So if you would like to support the show and you would like extra content, there is a way you can do that. And if you can't, like I said in the beginning, please share this with somebody. Please tell somebody about it. Send them a link. I cannot overstate how important this is. Literally, it's the thing that keeps the show going. More people find it, more people listen It just helps the whole thing work. In fact, it just does not work if nobody tunes in. So thank you for listening this far, and please spread the word if you can. All right, I'm going to sign off and let you get back to whatever it is you're doing. All right, bye-bye.
One last thing before we totally sign off here, I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to ToneMob.com Stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things, and by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? Again, the link for that is ToneMob.com Stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website, and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple, and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstreet as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got three different guitars that now have Gunstreet harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunstreetWiringShop.com and check them out.